All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am joined today by Clark Forsyth, the author of a recent Wall Street Journal piece entitled Democracy is the Issue in the Mississippi Abortion Case. I've linked it in the show notes. And Mr. Forsyth is senior counsel at Americans United for Life. He's been doing this kinds of work for decades. And he's the author of Abuse of Discretion, the inside story of Roe versus Wade. If you want to read that book, I highly recommend it. I've got my own copy right here. This is a really good manual for understanding everything about the legal regime that has created Roe, created our abortion restrictions in America, uh, or our lack thereof. Uh, and it's a really good sort of field guide for all of that. Uh, it's very good, highly recommend. Uh, and uh, in addition to writing that, Clark is also husband to Karen and the father to five daughters, uh, the eldest of which is my wife, Sally. So uh, dad, welcome to Creedle. <laughs> It's great to be here, Zach. No, I'm really glad to have you. I know you've been on some of my podcasts before, but never on Creedle. So this is your first time appearance. Um, and I really enjoyed your recent piece in the Wall Street Journal talking about this Mississippi case. I want to talk about the Mississippi case and exactly what is at stake in front of the Supreme Court in the coming weeks and months. But maybe before we do that, yes. if we could talk about some of the things that you explain in depth in your book. So I, again, will refer listeners and viewers to the book if they want a really in-depth, holistic survey of everything we're talking about here. But Maybe let's just step back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about sort of the regime, the legal regime that has codified our abortion restrictions or lack thereof in the United States, uh, starting with Roe mm -hmm. v. Wade. I know Doe v. Bolton, KCV Planned Parenthood, Griswold v. Connecticut. I mean, um, those, those are some of the big ones. Obviously, you're, you're the legal expert here. So, so talk to me about a little bit of uh, the background here and how we got to where we are today. Well, uh, it all goes back to Roe versus Wade, really. Um, I mean, Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965, the court said that there was a right to contraception or at least um, marital contraception. Um, but it was really a big leap to Roe versus Wade in 1973. There really wasn't a, a precedential bridge. Um, it, it really was a logical, biological, legal, constitutional leap. But the court took it in 1973. Um, and I explain in abuse of discretion what all went behind the scenes in 1971 and 1972, um, really the societal crisis as well as the crisis in the court. But um, the big case is Roe versus Wade in 73, in which the court, by a seven to two vote, um, basically just announces that there is a right to abortion. And they uh, say that there's a right to abortion not only in the early, so-called early stages of pregnancy, but there's a right to abortion up to fetal viability, and then even beyond fetal viability for any health reason. And then they define health as all factors, um, sociological, familial, economic, emotional, medical, related to the well-being of the patient. That's their definition. But what, what isn't part of that? Um, so even after viability, they declare there's a right to abortion that the states can't prohibit, uh, all the way up to birth. And so because of Roe versus Wade, um, still 48 years later, we are one of only seven nations uh, of 195 across the globe that because of Roe allows abortion for any reason after 20 weeks. Uh, so the court set us on a tra trajectory that's been terrible for the nation. It's been a self-inflicted wound for the court. Um, and it set us off as one of the most extreme abortion regimes in the entire globe. Um, and uh, um, it, the court did a couple other terrible things as well, uh, striking things. They 
The court uh, set itself up as the center of abortion politics in the country because the court determines the law in every state and county and town from coast to coast. Um, and the court established a very detailed regime. It didn't simply say the Georgia and Texas laws um, were invalid. It, it really drafted a national statute, which the court controls and has controlled by itself and through the lower federal courts. So the court has, in effect, become the National Abortion Control Board. And, and uh, that's why confirmation hearings like Justice Kavanaugh's and to a lesser extent, Justice Barrett's and Justice Thomas's were so uh, vitriolic, so bitter, so divisive, because um, if the courts, if nine justices are the center of abortion politics, then every justice could threaten the re abortion regime. And uh, so it invited personal attacks of campaigns of destruction against the nominees. So it's all been a terrible self-inflicted wound and the, the court can't soon enough overturn that decision and send the issue back to the American people. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your point about how the court has become this sort of national abortion control board. And one consequence of that is that the abortion issue also becomes a sort of um, bellwether, if that's the right word, for national politics, including national elections at the presidential level, because it's the president who appoints yes. the justices. And then so if if, yep. if if this is such a salient issue, and I think it is a very salient issue for many American voters, myself included, uh, then that is going to have at least some bearing on how you'll cast your votes even for a president, uh, only because of the president's and, ability to and appoint. And for the U.S. Senate. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. So do you also know offhand which of those uh, w what the other six countries are that you mentioned have sort of the same or less abortion restrictions? Because uh, I remember reading about this in your book. And it, on, on the one hand, you might think, yeah, that's right, because America should be sort of the, the beacon of, of progressive enlightenment and autonomy in the world. And so it's right that we're, we're leading the way. But I know at least one of those countries is China. And so anytime you have America and yep. China as, you know, two of the two of only seven countries in the world who are on one side of an issue, you might want to take a second guess uh, or take a second look. So do you, have, do you know what the other countries are offhand? Well, it includes um, North Korea and Vietnam and China and Canada. Um, and Canada um, is stands out as, I think, the only other nation in which the uh, Canadian Supreme Court struck down a prior law, and then the gap, the vacuum has never been filled uh. by the Canadian Parliament. Um, but, uh, but, uh, and there may be one or two others, but um, those are the those are the major countries that we're we're grouped with as the most extreme abortion regimes in the entire world. Yeah, so these are not the beacons of Western progressivism. This is basically the United States, Canada, and then authoritarian repressive regimes like North Korea and China. Yeah, not not good. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, European countries, which Amer many Americans perhaps would like to model ourselves after, um, uh, uh, even them, even those limit abortion perhaps by 14 mm -hmm. weeks. Um, so... Um, we are even more extreme than European countries. Now, another line in your recent Wall Street Journal piece caught my eye, and you talk about this in your book as well, but you say, many Americans might be surprised to know that since Roe in 1973, the Supreme Court has not addressed an actual abortion prohibition that applied before fetal viability. Now, you, you alluded to this a little bit, and you also hinted that Canada has a sort of similar situation where their court struck down restrictions and the gap has never been filled. Uh, but I think that's surprising to people 
that the Supreme Court really hasn't addressed an actual abortion prohibition that talks about what prohibitions apply, if any, before fetal viability. And you mentioned that this is this is potentially what the Mississippi case involves. So let's pivot to the Mississippi case now a little bit and talk to us about what's what's at stake in the case, what this is about and what this means for the court. Um, There are something like 40 abortion cases in the lower federal courts, all heading to the Supreme Court. There's a traffic jam heading to the Supreme Court. And this is kind of the first of those 40 cases it, to get. Is that court. just real quick? It, it, is that a historically high number or is that more or less on pace? It is. Okay. It is. I mean, um, you know, in 2021, there are two unique conditions involving these cases that really haven't existed before. Um, first, a, a six member so-called conservative majority, um, at least I would call them an abortion skeptical majority, First time um, six justices have been, could be described as that since 1973. Um, And secondly, uh, there are an abundance of abortion cases in the lower federal courts, which hasn't been true before either. So the court knows, the court can pick and choose. It can pick and choose any any or none of those, and it can do so carefully. So um, the the end of the answer, uh, which I'll address now, is is kind of that the court could see this as a first step of two steps or the first step of three steps toward overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, at least that kind of thinking could could can be going on because there are so many other cases that are heading to the court. Um, but Mississippi's uh, passed a 15 week limit, a limit of abortion, prohibiting abortion after 15 weeks of gestation. Um, and that arguably uh, conflicts with Roe versus Wade. Um, and because it arguably conflicts with Roe, because Roe says you can't have any prohibition before viability and viability is, you know, the minimal now is maybe 21, 22 weeks. Um, again, it depends on how you define viability, which is somewhat vague. But um, I think tech may, Mississippi may have even admitted this is before viability. So it arguably conflicts with Roe, um, the Jackson Mississippi Abortion Clinic, Jackson Women's Health Organization sued in federal court even before the law ever went into effect. And uh, that creates the test case that has gone through the lower uh, uh, federal trial court, the district court, the uh, court of appeals, um, and now, and then was appealed to the Supreme Court really about a year ago, 11, 10 months ago. The court kind of kicked it down the road for several months and then just on uh, in uh, um, May uh, decided to take the case. And uh, so it will be argued uh, maybe in the fall, maybe in November, with a decision at least by, at least, uh, by next June or by the end of next June. Uh, there's a lot of complete discretion as to when the court releases decisions, but um, the end of the term comes June 30, 2022. So uh, it's almost certain a decision by then. Um, but there are a lot of there are a lot of uncertainties after that. A lot of possibilities. Um, I like to describe it as when the court issues a decision, kind of shaping any legal doctrine, whether it's immigration or sovereign immunity or corporate law or or abortion, uh, the court can kind of alter its doctrine, uh, the legal framework in with tiny steps or small steps, big steps. 
And I would, you know, I would like the court to overturn Roe versus Wade in this case and take that big step. But it could simply say the lower courts got this wrong. We're going to send it back and uh, we're going to send it back. And you have to actually uh, go through a fact finding process. Um, you have to really you, you should determine whether what the impact of this law is going to be or um, the court could say something like we're going to send the send it back and the uh, the law should go into effect before it should be challenged. Um, or the court could simply say um, this is not inconsistent with Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey and we're just going to uphold it on its face. Um, and if people in Mississippi want to challenge it as it's applied, um, they can do so. I mean, the, those are all different steps, tiny, small, big, the court could take. Um, we, my, I see my job as an advocate in court to encourage the court uh, and give the court the reasons why and the tools to take the broadest step possible. But I think we just need to have modest expectations. And here's why. Mississippi has not asked the court to overturn Roe versus Wade oh. or Panner versus Casey or any other precedent. And the court usually looks to the parties to present the questions uh, that the court has to decide. And in this case, Mississippi, Mississippi has, as I think, posed a very modest question, which is simply whether all prohibitions on um, pre-viability elective abortions are unconstitutional. That's a very kind of modest question, kind of an incremental question. And um, uh, so the big, the big question, overturning Roe, overturning Casey, isn't really presented. Mississippi could, I suppose, change its mind, but right now it's just to ask this really modest question. So how is that modest question distinct from asking for a, a total overturning of Roe? Because if Roe says basically no, no abortion restrictions except for, um, uh, was it uh, health reasons? Or, I mean, if, if that's what Roe says, if that's right. what Roe codifies, and Mississippi is saying, hey, can we have other restrictions? Isn't that the same thing as overturning Roe? Uh, well, abortion advocates would say it is because they'll say it just guts Roe. Uh, they'll say, well, there's nothing left of Roe. But I mean, as a practical matter, 90% of abortions are done before 12 weeks. So even if Mississippi could enforce a 15-week limit, it would not touch 90% of the abortions that are done um, um, and, uh, you know, if every state passed uh, a 15 week limit, um, it would not touch 90% of the abortions that are I done see. Okay. across the country. Um, and overturning Roe, I mean, uh, that's a, a good question is what does it mean to overturn Roe? Um, it means that it's no longer the law, but by overturning Roe, the court doesn't make abortion illegal. Um, no federal statute that prohibits abortion goes in, back into effect. Um, no 50 state prohibition on the books goes back into effect. Basically, overturning Roe means sending it back to the states. And what's on the books in the states can presumably be enforced. So if Colorado allows abortion on demand up to birth, that's the law in Colorado. If Mississippi has a 15-week limit, that can be enforced in Mississippi. If Ohio has a limit at viability, fetal viability, that can be enforced. But it, it's very decentralized if the court overturns Roe versus Wade and, and sends it back to 
the states. And I think the terminology really matters because I often see these sort of scare mm. pieces in, you know, Slate or the New York Times or Washington Post and any of the sort of usual culprits yeah. that will say there's a there's a abortion case in front of the Supreme Court. Your abortion rights could be at stake. Uh, when in reality, based on what you just said, um, even if Roe is, quote, overturned by a decision like the the one that's in front of the court in this Mississippi case, that would not affect a lot of people who who live in the U.S., right? If you live in California, your abortion rights would not be affected by that unless the court were to were to actually not just overturn Roe and say, you know, this reasoning was wrong, but actually declare the opposite, right? That um, that somehow abortions constitute a violation of uh, the, 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 the rights of the unborn baby, right? But that's not that's not what I mean. No one really expects that to happen. Am I am I right in thinking that? That's correct. Uh, another way uh, phrasing it is that the the court. I mean, s- some advocates would urge the court to declare that the unborn child is a a person, a constitutional person under the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, but um, if 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 pro life uh, advocates want uh, constitutional protection for the unborn, I think they're going to have to pass a new amendment because nothing in the 14th Amendment mentions abortion, unborn child, prenatal human being, anything like that. And um, uh, with these justices having lived through the last 48 years and seen what it's meant for the court to be the center of abortion politics, um, declaring constitutional personhood would maintain the court as the center of abortion politics in the country. And it would, in effect, the court would be asked to decide not whether abortion laws are too strict, as they do now, but whether abortion laws are too loose Mm. in allowing abortion. Um, So in one fell swoop, the court would move from deciding whether abortion laws are too strict on access to abortion to deciding whether abortion laws are too loose in allowing any abortion virtually. Um, it would maintain the court as the center of abortion politics in the country. And um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certain that the, uh, even the justices in the current con- so-called conservative majority um, believe that the court should decentralize the issue and return it to the states because it was a state issue for 200 years before, um, before Roe versus Wade. Well, that, and there's also the, uh, the startling differences in judicial philosophy, right? I mean, it may, may be the case that conservative justices yeah. are opposed to abortion, but it's also the case that the conservative justices in general take a conservative jurisprudential view that views decentralized de- decentralization and sort of the, um, the state legislatures deciding things as the optimum way to go forward. So, um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. In, that, in, a, in a sense that abortion was always a state issue and nothing in the constitution takes it away from the states. Nothing in the 14th Amendment, nothing in the Reconstruction Amendments takes it away from the states. So it always was a state issue, is a state issue until the American people pass a constitutional amendment to the contrary. Um, So to answer your question, um, uh, I I think there is almost nobody who expects the court to declare constitutional personhood, especially in this case. Yeah, in in a way, I mean, as much as I hate abortion, I, I wonder if it's better um, long-term for the, for the prospects of that, if the court doesn't, because what I'd be afraid of, if the court were to do that, if they had a, you know, probably a five justice majority, because I don't think Roberts would go along with that sweeping reversal. But so let's say a five justice majority, uh, declares that, uh, then I think you'd have a lot of arguments for court packing on the other side of the aisle. You'd, you'd see a court filled up with justices who are opposed to 
um, who are actually who are supporters of abortion. And you'd see a reversal and it would just stay in the hands of the courts. Whereas if it gets handed back to the states, then you're you're relying on state legislatures to enact policies. And as you pointed out in your Wall Street Journal article and in chapter 10 of your book, which, again, I'll hold up for the camera here. Abuse of discretion, the inside story of Roe versus Wade. You point out that abortion is not actually a popular thing. I think some in some cases, abortion advocates are afraid of this this getting taken from the hands of the courts because they know that at the popular level, it's not a winning issue. I mean, most people are opposed to abortion. And in fact, I mean, the vast majority are opposed. I mean, I've seen studies even where people um, people acknowledge, you know, I personally am opposed to abortion. I, I just support it for other people if that's what they want to do. But abortion in and of itself is not a popular winning issue um, for pro-abortion advocates. So I think they're afraid of it going back to the states. But I wanted to ask you about some of the studies you cite in your Wall Street Journal piece and in your book that explain this, this is really not as polarizing as people make it out to be. This is not a 50-50 argument. This is a sort of minority of the country wanting to uh, voice their views on abortion on a pretty large majority. Yes, and a, and a minority and a very small minority. In fact, uh, polling shows that no more than 7 to 10 percent of Americans want abortion on demand throughout pregnancy. So when the court... Uh, issued Roe versus Wade, reaffirmed it in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey and has imposed it on the country, it has sided with seven to 10 percent of Americans. Um, so the court is wildly out of sync with um, American public opinion. Uh, so, um, um, you know, I, I cited uh, Gallup polls, uh, Maris polls, but, but there are polls a couple of decades that show that um, uh, a super majority of Americans, I mean, up more than 60% of Americans, uh, really think abortion should be illegal after the first trimester, the first 12 weeks of, of pregnancy. And obviously that's not my position, but I'm just trying to recognize where public opinion is. And I wanted to present a realistic picture of where public opinion is, because as you said, uh, you know, online, there's a lot of screaming and screeds about um, you know, this is going to mean abortion is illegal everywhere uh, and so forth. But if the court upheld this 15 week uh, limit, upwards of 60 to 70 Americans would say, yeah, I agree with that. So what you're saying is uh, the American people have a filibuster proof majority <laughs> uh, in favor of restricting abortions beyond 12 weeks. That's right. That's right. I, um, if, if you go online and, and you just uh, look for polarization or polarized and abortion, you'll see all kinds of commentary saying that the American, American people are polarized on the abortion issue. Um, I mean, in, in op-eds and commentary, but in supposed news analysis. Uh, and that suggests that 50% of the people are on one right. side of the spectrum, 50% of the people are on the, are on the other. And that is just flat out wrong. There is a big middle um, and uh, on on a range of uh, of abortion related issues, and um, um, I, I Americans need to need to know that, and the court needs to know that, um, and uh, that's why I felt compelled to to write the uh, Wall Street Journal piece. Now, one other question for you, um, as it as it relates to sort of the broader uh, abortion fight, uh, your first book was about prudence in politics. And, um, you know, part of that, I think, is not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And so I'm wondering what, what you would say to people who are listening or viewing this and um, sort of opposing an incrementalist approach. Right. In other words, 
what they really hope for is the Supreme Court to not just nullify, but but actually reverse and hold the opposite of the Roe v. Wade decision, right? To to keep it centralized in the courts, or yeah. they want Congress to pass a personhood amendment, et cetera. And anything short of that is tough to get excited about, right? Um, and I think that's, I mean, personally, I think that's a problematic position because uh, in our Republican system of government, we rely on incremental approaches all the time. Um, I remember uh, watching a Marco Rubio interview several years ago, and he had sponsored a bill that would um, prohibit abortions, you know, beyond a certain uh, point. I think it was viability, uh, except for reasons of health, right? And uh, he was challenged by the TV host, and the TV host was asking, well, if you really believe that abortion is wrong, why are you having this provision? And, he, and he, his response was, well, because this is better than nothing, and this is the way I can get bipartisan support for this bill. Uh, the bill, I think, died in committee, but the, the point was, you know, Marco Rubio had a very incrementalist approach that um, was sort of opening him up from attacks, opening up two attacks from both sides, right? People who were saying that was not conservative enough and people who were saying, well, you're just a hypocrite because, you know, I'm progressive and you're saying that you're going to agree with me on this one point. So you're not really a, it's in a way, it's sort of a no true Scotsman fallacy, I guess. But um, what would you say about sort of the incrementalist approach and thinking about uh, all of these things? Well, uh, I don't worship incrementalism. I'm not an incrementalist in the sense that uh, incrementalists uh, suggest step-by-step approach. Mm-hmm. An increment is a step. And uh, an incrementalist approach means you take a kind of a step-by-step approach. But prudence is, is the cardinal virtue. It's, and it's the preeminent of the cardinal virtues. Um, not justice, not courage, not temperance. Prudence is the, is the preeminent of the cardinal virtues, uh, which means from a Thomistic perspective that it determines in any particular situation what's courageous, what's temperate, uh, what's just. Um, and so prudence should guide our steps. Uh, prudence comes first, not incrementalism. Um, but prudence needs to decide what steps are effective because prudence as a cardinal virtue is oriented toward the moral good in politics and is should lead us to the moral good and effectively achieving the moral good, not just talking about it, not just shouting about it, but achieving it. And uh, so uh, I look to prudence to, to guide whatever the steps are in any particular situation for whatever particular strategy. And um, if, if the court, as I believe is, is certain, is not gonna declare a constitutional personhood, then what is, the, what is the way, what is the political strategy, what's the legal strategy for achieving the greatest good in, in protecting human life from conception from coast to coast. And um, although a constitutional amendment might be considered, um, the pro-life advocates really need to understand that the states have been the source of strength for the cause of life in America. Compare the U.S. with a federalist system to, say, Canada with a parliamentary system or to Great Britain with a parliamentary system. The cost for life in those parliamentary countries tends to be moribund, much less strong, much less creating much less momentum, having much much less success than the cause for life in America. Because when we're kicked out of some congressional committee or some bill in Congress dies, um, the cause for life has gone into the states and state by state, year by year has, has created real progress um, the, the abortion rate has, has declined 50% since 1980. 
um, has passed strong legislation. I mean, Wyoming just a couple of months ago became the 31st state in the country to pass a fetal homicide law from conception. Uh, and most and, and virtually all of those 31 states have passed those laws since Roe versus Wade. So um, I frankly am concerned that if we either ask for constitutional personhood um, or pass a constitutional amendment that federalizes the issue or uh, that or that or that that puts the issue back in Washington, that the movement could rue the day that happens uh, if all the focus is on D.C. and not working in the gra grassroots state by state where so much progress and so much momentum has been created. Yeah, I share your concern, and it would be a shame to see 40 years of work at the state level just undone in one presidential administration at the federal level once these issues become so centralized at the federal level. So, yes. Yeah, uh, but I I also will say that I mean we have we have people like you to thank for all the progress that's been made at the state level, dad. So thanks for your work for the pro-life movement over the years and for all the work well, thank that, you, that Americans United for Life has done. It's it's a real inspiration and I I want people who are watching this or listening to this to to pray for this cause and to join Join, join you with their prayers in support of the things that you and your your team are working for in the broader pro-life movement. So um, maybe kind of a combined final question here. As we look to the Mississippi case, um, given your years of experience litigating these types of things, I know you've argued, uh, you, you, you've argued for the Supreme Court, for Supreme Court cases before, what do you think is going to be the outcome of the Mississippi case? And then, uh, you know, over the next year, what should people be praying for and sort of thinking about and educating themselves on uh, to understand more about what's going on and to support the movement? Well, again, uh, the court could take many steps. I, I hope uh, at, at the least that the court will uphold the 15-week law and allow it to go into effect. Um, I think there would be broad majority support for that and, um, uh, and then turn its attention to the next abortion case. Um, I hope that court will take up a case in 2023 um, and hopefully uh, overturn Roe in that case if it doesn't do it in Dobbs. Um, but I think going forward, um, uh, I, I really do recommend my book, Abuse to Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe versus Wade, because it just sets out in a very readable, kind of non-legal, more political vein, uh, uh, historical vein, uh, how we got into this problem, uh, how the Supreme Court went off the rails in Roe versus Wade, why it uh, set off in such a disastrous path to declare a broad right to abortion and how it's been a self-inflicted wound for the court and disastrous for the nation. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it, it explains why we're here, uh, where we are today, and uh, also suggests what it's gonna take to um, overturn Roe versus Wade. See, I mean, people have to understand that Roe versus Wade has been a huge obstacle. Uh, if, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, the Supreme Court gets out of the way, the federal courts get out of the way, and it's truly a state issue and and the and the limits are off what the state can do they can provide they can pass protective legislation and i think that if uh, in the competition of ideas in the states um uh, and when you can compare what uh you know a pro-life state can do versus a pro-abortion state like new york state or california i think the pro-life movement wins that makes sense okay well we will uh we'll pray to that end we'll we'll be watching the progress of the mississippi bill and Thanks again for all your work, Dad. Thanks for joining an episode of Credo. Thanks, Zach. God bless you. And to my listeners and viewers, I will once again uh, 
put in a plug for abuse of discretion. Uh, as dad was just telling you, it's a really good, um, historical lens for, for a non-lawyer to read. So this is not full of uh, jargon. It's really helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at that in the show notes. If you want to take a look at that, uh, and, uh, continue to pray for these efforts uh, by people like, um, dad and his colleagues as they try to, to, uh, advance the cause of life at the state and the federal level. It's a really important fight, obviously. Uh, and not just in our country, but around the world. I mean, it's, as Dad was pointing out, it's it's one of the worst places in our country for for the fight, but um, but the fight goes on. Uh, so thanks for your prayers, and Dad, thanks for your work. Thank you once again, and uh, to everyone else. Thanks, Zach. God bless you. God bless you. <laughs>